I would like to see the Diamond Betsy story portrayed on Drunk History. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. I'm Scott Elfstrom. And I'm special guest star James Abendroth. When most people think of Texas, they think of cowboys and deserts. They think of a rowdy wild frontier where cattle and buffalo roam the plains and the threat of Indian attack is constant. But Texas is a vast and diverse place that the image is not just one part of the picture. In fact, in the 19th century, the northeastern part of the state looked far more like the Deep South, both culturally and geographically, than it did the Old West. Nowhere was this more evident than in Jefferson, the Queen of the Bayou. Today we're going to talk about the short but impressive history of this once glorious town. But first, what's your favorite country that's smaller than the state of Texas? Uh, I'm going to go with England (laughs) and France combined. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm going to steal Mike's Poland because Poland is just a little bit smaller than Texas. Mm. Is the desert in Poland bigger than the desert in Texas? No, it's much smaller. (laughs) But there is a desert. Um, Yeah, I don't know if I really have a favorite, but um, I'm going to choose Liechtenstein because it's fun to say. I knew you were going to say that. I'm going in a non-European direction, and I'm going to say Panama because Van Halen rocks. Today, Jefferson is a quiet backwoods town whose main industry is tourism and the antique shops that cater to visitors. But in the 19th century, it was the sort of rowdy saloon and riverboat town where Mark Twain would have been comfortable. Cotton was king, and this Texas city hundreds of miles from the coast gained a reputation as a miniature New Orleans. This reputation lasted until the Army Corps of Engineers opened up the Red River and turned what was once a thriving port city into just another out-of-the-way town. The glory days of Jefferson were lost to history, with only a tabloid worthy of crime giving them one last flash of fame. A classic boomtown, Jefferson went from nothing to a thriving metropolis to a near ghost town in less than 40 years. Some sources suggest that Jefferson was founded in 1836, but most records indicate that it was actually started around 1841 on land ceded by the Caddo Indians. Yeah, it was acquired from the Caddo Indians. Acquired from the Caddo Indians. Um... It was named for Thomas Jefferson, obviously, uh, the third president of the U.S., and it's recognized as the fifth oldest town in Texas. It first appeared on a map of Bowie County in 1844. Alan Earhart, a ferry owner and land surveyor, is considered the founder and father of the town. He purchased a large tract of land between the Big Cypress Bayou and Black Cypress Creek, which would eventually become Jefferson. At that time, a natural log jam a full 100 miles long existed just north of Natchitoches, Louisiana. This log jam was caused by naturally occurring large woody debris from when trees fell down due to age, erosion, or wind into the river and drifted downstream. It was known as the Red River Raft or the Great Raft. It was a natural dam that blocked the flow of the Red River, raising the level of not only the river, but also Big Cypress Bayou, which flowed into it by several feet. So much water accumulated in the Cypress Creek Basin that Caddo Lake, the only naturally occurring lake in Texas, was formed at some point in the 1700s. The jam was so dense that it was literally possible to walk across the Red River on the jumbled trees. According to the Native Americans in the area, the log jam had existed since the beginning of time, and today scientists believe that the jam may have formed as early as 1000 AD. 
By 1800, the difference in water levels caused by the dam were enough that, while the Great Raft existed, commercial riverboat traffic from both St. Louis and New Orleans via the Mississippi and Red Rivers to Jefferson was possible. Urquhart immediately recognized his land as a place with potential for a commercial city, and that was the prime motivator for his initial purchase. This location not only allowed boats to get further inland than any other port in the New Republic, but it was also located at a bend in the bayou. This increased width allowed the steamboats coming upriver the space they needed to turn around. Urquhart knew from the beginning that he wanted his future town to focus on the riverboat traffic. He used his surveyor skills to lay out the streets in his business district to face the water so that transporting cargo to and from the riverboats would be that much easier. And Urquhart's plan paid off. The riverboat traffic was enough to make Jefferson one of the major port cities of Texas, rivaling such coastal towns as Galveston, Indianola, and Houston. In fact, from 1845 until 1872, it was considered one of the most important ports in Texas. In the late 1840s, Jefferson was second only to Galveston in total tonnage of trade. And I'm just going to interject here that a whole lot of people that came to Texas seemed to be surveyors. <laughs> yeah. I guess when there's no towns and no roads or anything in the land, surveyors are kind of a, at a premium because... People have to mark their borders. Right. Well, I think back then, too, anybody who could read a map could probably call themselves a surveyor, <laughs> much as the way any barber might call themselves a dentist or doctor back then. We remember our stories about Rip Ford <laughs> and about uh, several of the other people. Uh, they were multi-talented. They had lots of jobs. Then they did lots of things. So that's why you could be a surveyor and a farmer and a lawyer and a doctor, all those things, because you kind of had to be. Right. They weren't as boring as us people in the future. Yeah. Hey, they didn't have to figure out iPhones. Yeah, no specialization. <laughs> exactly. While Alan Urquhart was the father of Jefferson as a commercial city, another man, Daniel Alley, was largely responsible for determining the residential face of the town. Alley bought land right outside Urquhart's business district with an eye to setting up a neighborhood with a decidedly genteel nature. In contrast to Urquhart's business district, Alley planned his portion of the city with a more aesthetic eye and lined up his roads using the cardinal points of the compass. Even today, looking at a map of Jefferson shows a distinct border between the two sections of the town. Yeah, and I was looking at my Google Maps earlier today, and you definitely can see that. I mean, there's the streets going one way, north and south, east and west, and then the the roads and the business district going straight to where the Bayou River used to be. And it's a very odd configuration of streets. So look it up, folks. Jefferson, Texas. Some of the inspiration for residential portions of the city came from a surprising source. Despite the fact that Jefferson was hundreds of miles away from New Orleans, the speed of the riverboats and the directness of the route between the two ports meant that they were only a four or five day trip apart. This made New Orleans effectively much closer than any of the cities that were actually in Texas, and Jefferson started to look more like trendy Louisiana than any of its inland neighbors. In fact, architecture in Jefferson as the town grew was quite similar to New Orleans with a Greek revival style that featured balconies and column-lined porches. In 1860, less than 20 years after its founding, Jefferson had a population of 4,000. In the lead-up to the Civil War, the opinions of the citizens of Jefferson and Marion County in general were obvious as they voted unanimously for Texas to secede from the Union. Jefferson had a large role in the war, though the fighting never reached it. Many of the town's men served in the war, and it was an important supply point for the South for goods going to New Orleans until that port was captured. In addition, a cannery and a shoe factory were built for supplying the Confederate Army. After the war, the economic growth continued, largely due to its status as support. Even during the difficult times of Reconstruction, the city reached its peak population of 7,000 in 1870. 
More than 200 new buildings were under construction at the time. Money was assigned for several town improvements, including upgraded wharves, fire equipment, and a modern water system. Jefferson was the sixth largest town in, in Texas during this era. It was not uncommon for one of the paddle boats coming or going from the town to carry as many as 130 passengers and 425 tons of cargo, or approximately 1,800 bales of cotton, if the vessels were going downriver. The beginning of the end for Jefferson came not with a whimper, but with an enormous bang. Over the years, there were many attempts made to restore the, quote, natural flow of the Red River by dismantling the Great Raft, which was rather arbitrarily turned uh, a navigational hazard, even though it didn't block really much navigation. Most of these efforts failed, invariably. In fact, the original raft was actually dismantled by a steamboat builder and a captain named Henry Miller Shreve. Now, it took him several years, but he finished it in 1838. And for his efforts, the city of Shreveport, Louisiana, was named after him. Almost immediately, because they weren't clearing off the trees from the river, the raft reformed further downriver, and it became the behemoth that was there when Jefferson was created. In 1873, the Army Corps of Engineers, using generous amounts of dynamite, blew up the reformed Red River raft. As expected, without this natural blockage, the river did indeed flow more freely. The levels of Cato Lake and Big Cypress Bayou fell so low that riverboat traffic to Jefferson, although still possible, was no longer reliable. Only a few years after the destruction of the raft, Jefferson's population fell to a little over 3,000 and has never really returned to the levels it did when it was a riverboat port. The reduction in trade caused by the loss of a reliable path between Jefferson and New Orleans was exacerbated by the completion of a railroad nearby. The new Texas and Pacific Railway line went from Texarkana to Marshall and completely bypassed Jefferson. Poor Radiator Springs. <laughs> Even though the railroad line did come to Jefferson only a year later, other towns like Dallas and Marshall grew much more quickly and easily surpassed Jefferson. Most of the businesses in Jefferson either closed up shop or moved to other cities, or even across the river to Shreveport. Shreveport became an attractive alternative because it was one of the many towns that benefited from the increased flow of the Red River. Uh, Jefferson never really recovered, and the one-two punch of the clearing the raft and the railroad passing them by kept their population low. There were only 2,024 citizens in the 2000 census. Exactly why did people want to get rid of the Red River Raft? It's up for debate how much people knew that the destruction of the raft would change people's lives. The benefits to cities downriver from the Great Raft like Shreveport were obvious to the increased flow of the river after its removal. One unconfirmed theory as to why the raft was removed revolves around the railroad baron Jay Gould. The story goes that Gould wanted to take his railroad through Jefferson. Had they accepted, there is little doubt that the rail line from Texarkana to Marshall would have included Jefferson instead of one of those cities. Given how well riverboat traffic was doing for the town's economy, the leaders of the town saw no need for the railroad and turned down the offer. Not one to take no for an answer gracefully, Gould is said to have declared that grass would grow in the streets of Jefferson without the railroad. Rumors in town even speculated that he pressured the government into blowing up the raft. And we know from our discussion of uh, Helena that uh, curses involving the railroad are very potent. Well, absolutely. Very I mean, potent curse. Unfortunately, like most great stories, there's little evidence that all of this really happened. Gould actually didn't even inquire the Texas and Pacific until the early 1880s, and he only visited a town much, much later. Now, Gould was one of the most wealthy men in the world, and in the early 1870s, he was quite in the news for shady dealings, political intrigue, and manipulation of the markets. He had tried to corner the gold market uh, just like two years before. Gould tried to corner gold? Yeah, indeed. 
It was a big deal. And he was known for bribing General Grant's administration and all that kind of stuff. So he was, a, he was an easy target. Everyone would, everyone would have had to buy Gould Gold. Right, Gould Gold. But yeah, so like I said, he's an easy target for speculation and an easy target for why Jefferson's world would collapse so quickly and so suddenly. It may just have been a matter of time for the end to come. A train line would have been good for Jefferson, and the railroad did come through a year later, but it wasn't ever going to be enough to support the town at its former levels. It's doubtful that even at its height, Big Cypress Bayou could have supported the larger barges that would eventually replace paddle boats as the method of river trade. Now, whatever the case, grass does indeed grow in some of the streets that existed in Jefferson when Gould is said to have made his famous threat. Now, interestingly, years later, the town acquired Gould's custom railroad car and it's currently on display as a significant tourist attraction now have you any of you heard the terrible tale of large barge (laughs) (laughs) let's save that one for halloween yeah jefferson had more than three decades of exceptional growth and the promise of many more before the great raft was destroyed given the optimism and hope this provided it is unsurprising that the citizens of the town were ambitious in their quest to make it a beacon of culture and progress For a time, Jefferson managed to become a city of first and still holds some of those titles today. In 1867, it was the first town in Texas to use artificial gas lighting. This was made possible using an ingenious system that extracted gas from the sap of pine knots and logs. And I grew up in the Piney Woods, so there's a lot of fuel in a good old pine tree like that. (laughs) They stink like kerosene. I think that's really what it is, right? Yeah, it's turpentine. Yeah, it's turpentine. Hmm. The next year, in 1868, it was the first city in Texas to commercially generate ice. In keeping with its close linkage with its distant sister city of New Orleans, Jefferson even briefly had a rail trolley system. In a different vein, but still closely tied to Jefferson's glory days, its premier hotel, the Excelsior, has been in operation from its opening in 1850. This makes it the second oldest hotel in Texas to be in continuous operation. Excelsior! (laughs) Um, Jefferson largely faded from history very quickly after 1873, and it rapidly went from a booming trade town to an out-of-the-way backwater. The town would achieve brief national attention four years later, though, because of a young woman named Diamond Bessie Moore. Bessie Moore was a striking young woman who was born in 1854 in Syracuse, New York, and she was born with the name Annie Stone. Her beauty and the attention it garnered from men led her to an affair with an older man at the early age of 15. This was a short-lived relationship, though, and when it ended, she engaged in a life of ill repute to support herself. Her beauty and skill garnered her many admirers, customers, and these men showered gifts upon her, most notably a great deal of diamond jewelry. At one point, Annie traveled the country plying her trade and worked in brothels in Cincinnati, New Orleans, and Hot Springs in Arkansas. In Hot Springs, she met a man named Abraham Rothschild. Rothschild became her lover and, according to some records, her husband. Their relationship was tumultuous, to say the least, and Rothschild was once arrested for beating her in public. Rather than asking her to give up a life of prostitution, he forced her to continue to help support them both, so you can add pimp to his stellar attributes. Several times, she accused him of trying to steal and hawk her diamonds. Yeah, that sounds like a match made in heaven right there. Yeah, boy. I, I, li- I like that Hot Springs was a place where you could go to visit prostitutes, that a prostitute would be lured Maybe to the great city of hot springs. <laughs> Maybe I just want a hot bath. Yeah, there, there you go. Yeah. In January of 1877, the couple arrived in Texas, first stopping at Marshall, then quickly traveling to Jefferson. Even in a town like Jefferson that strove to be cosmopolitan, 
The couple's flashy clothes and the ostentatious number of diamonds Annie wore made a splash. Rothschild started calling her Bessie, and this, combined with her signature jewelry, earned her the nickname of Diamond Bessie. Why Rothschild picked this particular nickname, it's unknown, as is exactly why they came to Texas in general, and Jefferson in particular. It is possible that it was part of some scheme by Rothschild to hawk one of Bessie's diamonds. Only two days after arriving in Jefferson, the couple was seen crossing the bridge at Cypress Bayou with a picnic lunch. Three hours later, Rothschild returned to the town alone. Now, of course, this is going to garner some suspicion, and people question Rothschild about Bessie's whereabouts. So he claimed that she had strayed across the bayou to visit friends, although how she had friends after only being in Texas for a couple of days, we don't know. But uh, things became more suspicious when he ate breakfast at the hotel the next day alone, wearing Bessie's diamond rings. And the next morning, he got on a train to Cincinnati with Bessie's luggage, but still no Bessie. That's just the way you want to throw suspicion off yourself. Yeah, exactly. We can only assume that nobody paid any mind to all this suspicious activity because there was no definite signs of foul play. Plus, these two were not exactly members of proper society, if you know what I mean. That changed a couple of weeks later, though, on February 5th, when Bessie's body was found in the woods. All of her jewelry was gone, obviously, although otherwise she was fully clothed. The remains of the picnic lunch she and Rothschild had taken with them were scattered around her body. She had been killed by a single gunshot wound to the head. It was probably a bear, <laughs> yeah. right? Is that how the story ends? Well, even in, even the bears have guns in Texas. <laughs> yeah, Damn right. Know. Now, in the meantime, back in Cincinnati, Rothschild had become steadily more paranoid and unstable, and this was exacerbated by the fact that he had been, begun consuming massive amounts of alcohol. Or maybe the fact that he murdered his girlfriend. Uh, it could have played into his paranoia. Um <laughs> In fact, his paranoia got so great that in late February, he shot himself. But rather than dying, um, he just put out his right eye. What kind of wimpy gun was he using? (laughs) It's apparently as good at killing himself as he is at covering up killing other people. Right. But while he was in the hospital, his identity was discovered. I guess the word had got out that they were looking for him. And uh, after a few days of recovery, they sent him back to Jefferson. Now... This Rothschild is not really a member of the famous Rothschild family that purportedly controls the earth, but Abraham's family was well-to-do, and this case had all the aspects of a tabloid special. There's a rich man from a good family accused of murdering his prostitute companion. For obvious reasons, it garnered a lot of attention and was Texas' first nationally visible murder case. Governor Richard B. Hubbard called it a crime unparalleled in the record of blood. Sounds completely factual. Abraham was the black sheep of the family, but the Rothschilds rallied around him nonetheless, perhaps for no other reason than to reduce or eliminate the scandal. In any case, they hired 10 high-priced lawyers to defend him, and those lawyers quickly got a change of venue. O.J. only needed like six. Yeah. But, <laughs> wow, but one ten. Of them, but one of them was a Kardashian, so... <laughs> okay. They claimed, no doubt legitimately, that the citizens of Jefferson were so hostile toward Rothschild that the jury poll was tainted. The case was moved to nearby Marshall and went to trial in December of 1878, already almost two years after Bessie's death. Yeah, I would imagine that the people of Jefferson were so upset, not necessarily because they were good friends with Bessie, because she wasn't there for very long, but the audacity of this guy to come in and act like <laughs> yeah. he was better than all of them and... 
you yeah. know, commit murder right under their noses and yeah. then walk away with all the diamonds. Yeah, okay. maybe maybe they were just embarrassed that they didn't notice him walking away with all of her diamonds yeah. and stuff. Like, that too. Yeah. Now, apparently, Marshall's not far enough away to keep public opinion from being against Rothschild, or maybe just the evidence against him was just too damning. In any case, from the beginning, the outcome of the trial seemed assured. In fact, during deliberations, the foreman of the jury drew a noose on the wall with the slogan, quote, that's my verdict. <laughs> with such sentiment stacked against him, it's not a surprise that a guilty verdict was quickly returned. But Diamond Bessie's story was far from over. Much to the outrage of the general public and the press, Rothschild's conviction was overturned on appeal. It was generally assumed that Rothschild's high social standing and wealth, compared to Bessie's status as a prostitute, had given him an unfair advantage in court. Imagine that. A representative example of public opinion was voiced in one editorial that said, Certainly all that is required to save a red-handed murderer from the gallows are two or three active friends and sufficient money. Some things never change. Even a successful appeal did not end Rothschild's legal woes. He went on trial again in December of 1880, almost four years after Bessie's death. This time, he was facing the judicial system back in Jefferson. Yeah, it's not real clear exactly what happened there, whether it was an appeal that sent it back down, or maybe one was a trial in a state court and the other was a local court. In any case, he was on trial again for the murder in Jefferson. It was a retrial. And he was back in Jefferson. He did not testify in his own defense, and his lawyers were able to easily discredit the prosecution's witnesses. Rothschild was again acquitted and returned to Cincinnati, much to the further dismay of the general public and the press. One journalist described it as, quote, One of the vilest and meanest murders ever perpetrated goes unpunished through the inefficiency of the legal system. Rothschild faded into oblivion after the second trial, but Diamond Bessie became something of a folk hero. Every year during the annual pilgrimage festival held in Jefferson, the city puts on a play about her murder trial. Her gravesite in the local cemetery has long been a popular tourist attraction, despite being unmarked for quite a few years. Today there is a tombstone that was supposedly installed in the night by an unknown admirer. Little of note has happened in Jefferson since Diamond Bessie's murder in the 1870s, a fact that the town as a whole seems well aware of. In fact, a great deal of effort has gone into freezing Jefferson's charm at that point in time. As a sign of just how tightly Jefferson has held onto its glory days, it has more state-registered historic structures than anywhere else in Texas, including the Excelsior Hotel, a lovely Carnegie Library from 1907, and the old post office. To capitalize on the lingering 19th century charm of Jefferson, they hold an annual historical pilgrimage. Each year features a rotating selection of the, of the historical buildings within the town, as well as several events that harken back to the town's glory days. Perhaps the most unusual of these events is a reenactment of the Battle of Jefferson. For all you Civil War buffs out there who are wondering why you've never heard of the Battle of Port Jefferson, it's because it never happened. This event is a sort of could-have-been reenactment featuring a replica Yankee ironclad attacking the city, though no such attack actually took place during the Civil War. Never let history get in the way of a good tourist trap. It's kind of a cross between Civil War reenactments and Amp Guard. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Cosplay <laughs> on a grand scale. Today, Jefferson is a sleepy, lovely, and quaint backwood town resembling many others in Texas and probably all over the nation. Its historic downtown features a plethora of antique shops, Jay Gould's railroad car, and lots of bed and breakfasts. 
It's only during the pilgrimage that Jefferson really shines, and it becomes a sort of 19th century wonderland, a throwback to a more grand time in Texas history. And I can vouch for that, not the pilgrimage part, but just the quaintness of Jefferson in general. Um, I've only been there once that uh, I stopped, and I went there for a wedding years and years ago and stayed at a bed and breakfast there and wandered around downtown, got a float in the old-timey soda shop. I went in the Excelsior Hotel, you know, in the lobby. I didn't stay there, but uh, there was like a little uh, display. I don't know if it was just a framed picture or something, but uh, Steven Spielberg, actually, we talked about Sugarland Express before on the show, and uh, they shot some of that movie there in Jefferson, and he stayed in the hotel, and he claimed it was haunted, and uh, we'll talk more about that another time, but it's a fun little story about, uh, you know, the master of cinema, Steven Spielberg, and the Excelsior Hotel in Jefferson. You really can feel the history. It's like, you know, they've gone out of their way to really preserve all these old buildings and, and all of that. When you were in Jefferson, did somebody ride up on one of those giant wheeled bicycles and say, Sir, telegram, telegram yeah, for that, you, sir. No, that, no, that, not that while is, I was there. <laughs> that's, that's way too high tech. Uh, it it would have been a horse. It would have been a guy on a horse. Pony Express coming through. Well, it seems like Jefferson has, like Scott said, has done a great job of preserving all these buildings and not just like facades, but using the buildings in the downtown and in the historic buildings rather than some of the Texas cities that you go to. Unfortunately, they just there's there's just empty storefronts and stuff that, or they're falling down. It's a tale that's told throughout Texas in a lot of the small towns. You know, my family and I lived in, and even growing up, I lived in a lot of small towns, and we all did. And there's this economic factor that we've seen great periods of change. I mean, we talked about Helena, and we talked about Indianola, and we've talked about all these towns where it was like, oh, there were 40,000 people here, and you go out in the middle of the country, and there's you, you're just, it's just a couple of cows and a few trees, and you're like, 40,000 people lived here? This was a This was a hub of activity? And like, yeah, they just didn't build a railroad here. And so everybody went somewhere else. And so there's nothing, there's very little permanence with the exception of a few cities in Texas. Yes, and you're right. The two things that really killed many towns in Texas was not getting the railroad and the moving of the county seat to the center of the, the, the county. Those two things could really destroy and derail a town. Jefferson's nice because it's a 2,000-person town. It's, it's not a big town, but it's not a tiny little speck of a town like some of the places I've been. Well, but, I, it, I, I agree with you. I was just making the point that it's not a center of mm-hmm. industry. It's not an industrial center anymore. It's not a shipping point, and it's not... It's not yeah, Jefferson it, is no Normandy. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's... I, I, I assume that the, the, the major industries besides tourism out there for years was the cotton fields and uh, was pine trees, l- right. lumber. Yeah. So lumber that probably kept, kept things alive for a while. I just like the idea that they really... Even from first, an act of desperation to we've got to cling on and hold on to this this thing that we've got here. This we're this great city. Don't forget we're this great city as people were leaving. But then that became an asset in the 20th century as people started to look for that to go visit and to see and to experience. And that's what's really nice about Jefferson. Yeah. And I like the idea of the of the culture of the town that that riverboat culture. I mean, we all saw Maverick, and you know everybody loves James Garner. That fun time of the riverboat, you know, the riverboat culture and, and that, that lifestyle that, that's sort of frozen in amber there. And that's what they've captured in that town. Well, and we, we allude to this in the introduction of the episode, but that those towns in Northeast Texas and Far East Texas align a lot more towards the Deep South. And so we talk about, te- we've talked about that Texas is not the South, Texas is not the West. It's all of those things and none of those things. 
But if you take the macrocosm of East Texas, of Far East Texas, it really is looking further. He's looking into Louisiana. And that's what, you know, you made the point of, it's got more in common with New Orleans than it does with Austin. And and the riverboats could make the trip from New Orleans to Jefferson in four days. So, and then you, you have your overland travel and who knows how many weeks mm-hmm. that might take to get to the next big, big center of culture in Texas. So yeah. it, it was very much an artery between New Orleans and, and Jefferson as you know, influence and culture. It was easier. It was easier to get things from another country at the time, the right. United States, well, from New and, Orleans, than it was to get from your own major port, Galveston. And, and of course, and of course, uh, you know, New Orleans was a riverboat hub, so it was going up the Mississippi. So it even had kind of the same culture, you know, that mm-hmm. that in the port was the riverboat. I think it's really neat the the cool event to, to picture that there's a raft of a log jam that's there, according to the natives. Since the beginning of all time. <laughs> yeah. And then we blew it up. Well, yeah. And, and then for, it came back. Yeah. First it, they took it apart. But then they then it came back. And then they decided they still didn't want it. I mean, that that's some tenacity right there. That you take something apart that's that big, you know, yeah. so big it, it, it dams up the entire Red River. You can walk across it. And then it just comes back. And instead of just deciding it's going to keep doing that, you go for blowing it up the second time. And this was a unique thing in nature. I, I, I read this, that this has, no one has any record of something like this occurring anywhere else in the world. Uh, that this raft, this, this large, this, this large a barrier, naturally occurring barrier occurred in, in this river. So yeah, we, we took a unique marvel of nature and destroyed it. You blew it up. <laughs> you blew it up. Well, and I'm wondering if like the raft was, was a like, what gave the idea, the, the people of Louisiana, the idea of putting casinos on, on the water, on the riverboat barges? Because well, <laughs> Shreveport, well, that's, that's where all the Well, let's talk about this idea of, the, you know, it is an interesting thing of uh, when you see these sort of, you know, modern day where it was like, oh, well, there's a, this formed and, you know, we have to, we see it in China right now. They're doing lots of like damming up rivers that have never mm-hmm. you know, undammable rivers they're damming it and then like lakes they're draining them and cities are they're doing lots of this kind of real world terraforming right here on earth and they're doing this large scale stuff and you, know, you look at this and you go well that that was there for a reason probably that formed in that river and it formed some kind of purpose but we just we just eventually just said we just have to get rid of this thing well you had to wonder why i mean obviously the people of jefferson weren't interested they must have known what was going to happen but I'm sure that the people in Treeport and Nacogdoches and Nacogdoches, for that matter, probably were interested in the Red River flowing more uh, freely. And we can speculate, and maybe it had something to do with Reconstruction era politics. Um, you know, the northeast of Texas was very much uh, at odds, so to speak, with the Republican governments uh, during the Reconstruction. That could have had something to do with it. I think probably has more to do with just the economy of Shreveport than than of anything else. That Shreve was, I think, still alive at that point, and he probably was like, "I want to get rid of this raft." So, who knows? I like the idea that that they were so desperate to explain why things just went off the rails, literally for the town, that they were like. Oh, this guy's in the news. It's his fault. It's Jay Gould's it's fault. A he, curse. It's a, it's yeah. It's a it's a conspiracy. You know, they, there was even stories that he had paid for. You know, had his lobbyist pay the government to do this. Well, this was a time. You know, it was it was a different time, kids. 
it, it would be like it would be like somebody saying like uh my town had a tornado and i'm gonna blame bernie madoff that bernie madoff guy it's his fault well you he, know he does have a weather control machine yeah exactly <laughs> yeah so jumping forward to the whole diamond bessie story which is a great story. I mean, it's there aren't a lot of things that are uniquely like I I, I find it interesting when it's like oh you blah 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 this happened and then it made the cover of the New York Times and you're like oh yeah. something I, I happens like, here. I would like to see the Diamond Betsy story portrayed on Drunk History. <laughs> That'd be outstanding. <laughs> that would be great. Drunk History. If you're listening, come down to uh, Jefferson. And, come on uh, down. Do it, some stories there. It's got to be. It's got to go down as. Possibly the most inept, ineptly executed murder that got away with it. Yeah, for a while. Well, well I mean, whatever and, happened to him is the question. And and you know, well, I guess he did get away with it even uh, entirely eventually. Yeah. Um, it's as far as I know, when when I was doing the research, they basically say once he got off the second time, he faded from history. So okay. maybe he learned his lesson and did not try to murder Hooker twice to. You know, did not tempt fate that way. Likely he drank himself to death. That's quite possible, too. Well, he he only had one eye, so there could have been involved some kind of depth (laughs) perception type of incident, like he accidentally walked off a ledge or open elevator shaft. Didn't realize how close that bus was, you know, where the the horse was. One of the other things is, uh, when I was doing the research, is that the people of Jefferson paid for their sheriff to go get him when he was extradited. Um, So, you know, it was such a blemish on their town, I guess, or they were so infuriated by it that they took up a collection to send him and pay for his yeah well i mean his, i think that makes sense i would be pretty embarrassing to know that you saw all the signs right. i mean there he is no bessie oh she's just with friends well, we just and, i know we just arrived but she's got friends across the bayou and, and wearing all his all her jewelry right yeah well, another thing to note is that this is 18 1880 right uh, it speaks to the gentility of the town that they didn't go lynch him because pretty much anywhere else in Texas, they they probably would have just gone and hanged him in the street. It's possible. It's possible. It's likely. <laughs> it's a little thing we call Texas justice. Well, yeah, or other things. Revenge. <laughs> or other things. The only other thing about Jefferson that, that's curious in the Red River after me is um, I recently drove from Dallas to New Orleans, and it's pretty dry. So... The idea that there was once a navigable waterway, I, I and, and I couldn't find any maps from the time because I actually wanted to see what it looked like at the time. Yeah, I, like I said earlier, I was looking at the map of Jefferson because of the, the whole road thing, how the two halves of town, the roads are oriented differently. And I was, at the same time, I was looking, you know, where exactly did this, you know, this waterway, right. how did, where did it run? And you can, if you can kind of barely trace a path across where you, you know there's a couple of small like oxbow lakes near jefferson and if you kind of go southeast you can goes right through cato lake and then there's there's all these little bits and bobs of water that look like little pieces of river left behind that you can you can kind of see where that path was but but trying to imagine a big enough waterway for you know river boats to go down river boats that also go down the mississippi to turn it's around, hard to right? Well, it's to just to turn around in and, the river, and and to and large enough to carry four hundred and twenty-five tons worth of cargo. Yeah, well, but like you were saying, you know, that country through there is like it's not like there's a big river along right. through there. It's not like it's a big marsh or even swampy now. Yeah, yeah. Right. So it just trying to imagine that there was a waterway through there is is pretty hard. Well, I, I think for the future frontiersmen who uh, colonize Mars, when you terraforming enough to have riverboats come through your town 
don't destroy the natural Martian foundations to to destroy <laughs> the river in front. And then secondly, when uh, as we've learned from a lot of different stories in Texas, when they want to build the space railroad, um, take it. Yeah, accept it. Do whatever you have to do to get the space railroad to go through your town. Don't don't use your space dynamite to blow up the space raft and take the space railroad. So for those of you that are subscribers of the podcast, you might recognize there's a new voice on the show. We have a special guest today, James Avedroth, who is the writer of this episode. So James, I, I just ask, you know, real quickly, what is your connection to this story? And, you know, what, what attracted you to, to write about Jefferson? Well, I, I grew up not far away, um, about an hour's drive. And, and uh, I don't know if you guys have talked about it enough, but in Texas, everything's measured by how long it takes to get there and not how many miles they are separated. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so I, I grew up not far away. We would go there every now and then, and, and uh, it pretty much is just one giant antique mall. I mean, you can go into any building there <laughs> and find farm implements from the, the 19th century. Um, also, my great aunt lives technically in Jefferson, although true to form for most small East Texas towns, um, it's the downtown area and then a lot of woods as far as you can see. And every now and then there's a house scattered somewhere around there, but it's called Jefferson. Um, but my my mother actually told me about Jefferson's glory days and uh, how it was once a riverboat town. And that blew my mind because, you know, I had been there and it was not a riverboat town anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, James. And thank you, James's mom. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you. So like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave us some feedback. You can also find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. Why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm at Maxham, two ends. And I'm Scotticus. And I'm Blackguard Press. If you like the show, tell your friends and please leave a review on iTunes. That's what really helps us out. The reviews on iTunes, that helps us get recognized in the iTunes store. So when people are searching for podcasts and they say, hey, what's new? What's interesting? Those reviews on iTunes and the ratings, that helps elevate our visibility and gives us more listeners. You heard it here. Go to iTunes, folks. Please join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas Texas wants you anyway. anyway.